I want to encourage you to resist the temptation as we start to think about specifics in terms of what it means to be a husband or to be a wife. Resist the temptation to think, okay, now we're getting down to the important stuff and this is, this is, this is what I came for. Um, now I think you just heard the important stuff. Uh, and this is, this is just now application of the important stuff. This, uh, never ever ever think in terms of moving beyond what you just heard. Think in terms of carrying what you just heard wherever you go. This, that is the truth you need to do life, that you are held fast by Christ in His love. On that basis, knowing that you are doing life from a place of approval and acceptance and love and security in Christ, from a place of that approval rather than working for approval and for acceptance, is the difference between a happy and a grieving life. Um, The gospel gives you the security you need and then the strength you need and the motivation you need to become a godly husband or to become a godly wife. So, carrying all that truth with us, let's 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 think about husbands this morning. And it, uh, with your Bible still open, uh, we probably should start back in verse 23 to note a couple of important things embedded in the text. Verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. There's, there's a couple things I want you to notice. I want you to notice the metaphor that Paul uses and then the grammar that Paul uses because both are, both are pretty important. First of all, the metaphor, he says the husband is the head of the wife. This is a, a figure of speech. We, we humans, we seem to really enjoy metaphors. We enjoy similes. Uh, as you know, a simile is comparing two things using the words like or as. Very good. A metaphor does not use the word like or as. This is a metaphor. The husband is the head of the wife. The husband is a head. What does that mean? Again, we, we, we like metaphors. We like analogies. We like similes. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did some serious research, not really serious, but research on, uh, metaphors and similes and came up with top, my top ten, uh, favorite similes of all time taken from various students' term papers, poetry, and my favorite humorist, uh, P.G. Wodehouse. Number ten. Worrying is like a rocking chair. Worrying is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but doesn't get you anywhere. (laughs) Number nine. It has been well said that an author who expects results from a first novel is like a man who drops a rose petal down the Grand Canyon and listens for the echo. As as a man who's tried to do some writing, I can identify with that one. Number eight, her vocabulary was as bad as like whatever. Number seven, she had a penetrating sort of laugh, rather like a train going into a tunnel. (laughs) Number six, long separated by cruel fate, the star-crossed lovers raced across the grassy field toward each other like two freight trains, one having left Cleveland at 6.36 p.m., traveling at 55 miles per hour, the other from Topeka at 4.19 p.m. at a speed of 35 miles per hour. <laughs> Number five, he was as lame as a duck. Not the metaphorical lame duck either, but a real duck that was actually lame. <laughs> Maybe from stepping on a landmine or something. 
Number four, she was so angry that she looked like a tomato struggling for (laughs) self-expression. Number three, John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who had also never met. (laughs) Number two, he looked as if he had been poured into his clothes and had forgotten to say when. (laughs) And then my, my favorite. Her hair glistened in the rain like nose hair after a sneeze. (laughs) All right. Metaphors and similes and analogies don't always work very well. Paul's works very well. The husband is the head of the wife. Paul wants us to think about Ahead. And what does a head do? How does a head function in relationship to the body? And Paul is saying that this is a metaphor for a husband's role in marriage. So notice the metaphor, but then notice the grammar. Notice that Paul states this in the indicative mood rather than imperative. The husband is the head of the wife. That's indicative. It's a statement indicating a fact. It is not an imperative, a commandment. It does not say husbands be the head of the wife. It does not say wives Let your husbands be your head. It's indicative. It is stating a fact. A husband is the head of the wife. God has designed it that way. It is what is in every marriage. It's not something that needs to become It's not a commandment that needs to be obeyed. It is a fact that needs to be acknowledged. And a fact that needs to be lived out. But it is what it is. God has ordained that the man be the head. The husband be the head of the wife. You say, well, what difference does that make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. For you men, this means that whether you like it or not, whether you're doing a good job of it or not, you are your wife's head. You can, you can run away to the farthest cave in the most remote wilderness on the farthest planet And make believe that you're not your wife's head, but you are still. You see, the question here then is not, are you the head of your wife? The question is, are you a good head? The question is, how do I not, how do I become the head of my wife? The question is, how do I function as the head of my wife in a way that is honoring to God and loving to my wife? That's the question. This this matters to husbands because it means that what really needs to happen is that we become what we are, that we, we live out what we are, what we are called to be. And it matters to the wife because it means that no matter how hard she might try otherwise to be the head of the marriage, it matters. It means that the husband still is the head. In the sight of God, this is what is. It does matter what the meaning of the word is, is. To quote a famous president, it it does matter. The, The word is matters. The husband is the head of the wife. So, our question needs to be, what does that mean and what's that to look like? And I would suggest to you that the model for manhood in marriage, 
the model for manhood in marriage is the man, Christ Jesus. The model for manhood in marriage is the man, Christ Jesus. Come up with an acronym uh, to help plant seven headship seeds into the soil of your mind and heart, uh, hoping that they will take root, um, hoping that they will bear fruit for years to come. So we're going to take the word husband and we're going to let that word, each letter of it, just begin these principles, these seven principles. What what does it mean to function as a head of the marriage, of the home? What does it mean to be living and your life, men, after the model for manhood in marriage, which is the man Christ Jesus? What is it? What does it mean? Well, point number one, H, hold fast. Hold Fast. Hold fast. Verse 31. We've already looked at it, but now let's apply it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Gentlemen, hold fast. Gentlemen, secure your wife in your love. This is, this is about more than just don't divorce your wife. There's about more than just, you know, don't quit on your marriage. No, this is about an active, intentional, emphatic lifestyle that communicates to your wife, to your bride, every single day, this message. I am a one-woman man, and you, dear wife, are the woman. You are my wife, I am your husband for life. It is adopting a lifestyle that communicates that. It's attitudes and words and actions that say to our wives, we are here, we are all here, we are only here, we are every day here. You, my love, are the single sole object of my love. Everything about us communicates holding fast. Our hearts are here. Our minds are here. Our desires are here. Our eyes are here. Our words are here. Our priorities are here. Our affections are here. We are here. Our Kent Hughes, in his book, excellent book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, writes, men, our wives must be able to rest in the fact of our fidelity. Everything about us, our eyes, our language, our schedules, and our passion must say to her, I am and will always be faithful to you. Guys, is your wife hearing, feeling, sensing that from you every day of her life? Is that your commitment? To so live and to so love that your wife will be secure. That she'll watch you go out the door in the morning and say, I know he's coming back. That she can leave you alone for whatever reason in the evening and know He is not going to go places in his mind or on the blue screen where he shouldn't go because he's mine and he lives that every day of his life. Does she know that? Does she know that? Hold fast. It's not just about don't get divorced. Too many Christians reduce. Well, you know, they say they didn't divorce. Well, it's, it's good, 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 good. But that's not the intent. The intent is not just don't quit. The intent is be all in. Be all in. Gentlemen, that's what it means to be the head of the wife. It means you hold fast. Second, you unify. Unify. 
unified. Verse, verse 31. The two shall become one flesh. Which is summarizing what he said back in verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 33. Let each of you love his wife as himself. There's a oneness here. There's, there's a unity here between the man and wife that they're covenanted to be one. One flesh, one body, one. This is a we marriage, not a me marriage. It's a phrase that you read in in uh, some uh, non-Christian sources. Marriage it cannot be a me thing. It's got to be a we thing. We're in it together. It's us as one together. Unity. I'm, I'm committed to us. The old book written by Wayne Mack. What, what the title was... Um, Marriage unity, one plus one equals one. Great title. One plus one equals one. Husbands need to lead the marriage into an experience of unity, of oneness. How do you do that? Well, we can get into a million, a million details here, I suspect. Um, That was close. Um, guys, I think, I think it starts with just thinking in terms of your oneness with your wife. Just don't think of yourself as a separate individual apart from your wife. The two have become one. That means you do life together. You, you are incomplete. It's not just a cliche. This is my better half. It's a fact. <laughs> There's the other half of me. At least in my case, definitely the better amen. half. And I heard that amen. And uh, it, the reality is that I need to think. I am incomplete without my wife. I am not whole. God has made us one. We, we unify by thinking that way. We unify by communicating rather than dictating. By communicating. And that's a whole nother seminar that we could have on what is communication? How do you communicate? How do you build unity through communication? But, you know, too often guys see headship as dictatorship, as I'm the boss. I, I, I'm the one who makes the decisions. I'm the one who, who says what's going to happen. Now that's, that's not what it's about. Real unifying takes place through communicating, through interaction, through sharing, through talking, through listening, through understanding, through gleaning and drawing out from your wife her wisdom, her insight, her opinions, her perspectives, and allowing those to inform you, allowing those to influence you, allowing those to affect you deeply and meaningfully, and then together working out and understanding, together working out a way forward. Unity happens through communicating, not dictating. Unity happens by committing to the same cause, to the same goals in life, as husband and wife committing to the kingdom of God, committing to the things that matter most, committing to the work of God, committing to the church, committing to your local church, committing to serving together, committing to hospitality together, just just doing together the things that God is calling you to do. Uh, you know, if you want a real, real quick summary of how to unify, look back at chapter four and verse twenty-five. This this will this will do it. Work on these things, and you'll be. You'll be moving in the right direction. Chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Just insert the word with your wife, with your husband. Speak the truth, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you want to be unified, don't go to bed mad. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief... 
who no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You want to unify? Well, anoint your words, your conversation with grace so that they don't corrupt. It means that they don't, they're not worthless, destructive words. Make your words edify. Make them words that give grace to your wife, give grace to your husband. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's there's the path to unity right there. There's there's the path, husbands. Lead the way here. You're the head. Lead the way in the path toward unifying with your wife. So you have H, which is what? Hold fast. You unify. S is serve. Or uh, let's just, just make it sacrifice. Sacrifice. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Couldn't get any more clear than that, can it? Husbands, you're the head of the wife. So what does this mean? Love her like Christ loves you. How has Christ loved you? He gave Himself up for you. He died for you. He gave it all for you. He served you to the point of ultimate sacrifice. How did Jesus lead us as His church? He led us by taking the most humble Part, the most humble role. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He gave Himself up for us in death that we might live. What does it mean for me to lead my wife as Christ leads the church? It means that I give myself up every day for my wife. I lay my life down every day. Biblical leadership is being the most humble, sacrificial servant in a relationship. It is not a matter of power. It is not a matter primarily of authority or anything like that. It is a matter of initiative. What are my wife's needs? How can I serve those needs? Just doing life that way. Being committed to life. That way, I don't know about you guys, but that's not instinctive to me. Yeah, I I like being served. I like getting home at the end of the day. I got my chair. You got your chair, gentlemen. You know, I got my chair, and I want my chair. And with some measure of promptness, I would like the various desires of my heart satisfied. I like to be served. Remember years ago, um, reading something like this, when, when, when a man says, I can't find it, What he really means is something like, when I opened my eyes, and whatever it is I wanted had not fallen into my lap, I didn't know what to do next. (laughs) I, I remember reading that and saying, oh man, done that, I mean, how many times? 
especially, you know, over time I learned this, um, but especially in the early years, maybe it still happens and Galen in her grace just overlooks it, but I remember times where um, I would, I'd want the ketchup. And I'd go in the general direction of the kitchen. Galen's at the other end of the house. And I'd, I'd yell down the hallway, Hey hun, where's the ketchup? With, without even opening the refrigerator door. You know, or maybe, maybe standing by the door, slightly open. You know, it's, I'm tall, it's hard to bend over <laughs> and, and, and look in. So it's, it's like I want, ultimately I want her to come and do it for me. You know, I, I, I want to be served. And I know some of you guys are squirming right now. Cause it's, you, you're replaying it in your mind and your wives are replaying it. <laughs> And, you know, there are many examples of it that you've forgotten that they haven't forgotten. <laughs> just, just ask them about it. Alright? It's, it's real. It's real. But Paul says, through the guidance and inspiration of the Spirit, guys, our whole orientation has to be the complete opposite of that. How do I serve my wife? How do I lay down my life for my wife? When I wake up in the morning, how do I consider her needs today? And make sure that I orient my time and my energy and my thoughts and my emotions to meeting her needs rather than waiting on her to meet my needs. A fundamental Perspective on life. We suddenly got some competition here. Um, there's there's a beautiful example of this. Um, a man named uh, J. Robertson McQuilkin. Does that name mean anything to any of you? Um, Dr. McQuilkin, now in heaven, was once president of Columbia Bible College. He had actually served as a missionary in Japan for about 12 years at the same time that my parents were in Japan. Uh, my mom and dad knew the McQuilkins uh, as, as fellow missionaries there. Uh, Dr. McQuilkin was a Christian leader, a scholar, a missionary, a pastor, president of a Bible college, a man who had tremendous impact uh, and influence uh, and the impact of his life, he's now been gone to glory for a number of years, but the impact of his life still lives on, and probably in no part of his life has he had more impact than the relationship that he had with his wife. He, he wrote a book that was called A Promise Kept, and in that book he recounts the love story of his life with his wife Muriel, Muriel had contracted Alzheimer's uh, a number of years before she died. And as her condition worsened, uh, she became terrified whenever he was not with her. And this put Dr. McQuilkin in a spot where he had to decide what the best care for his wife would be. Many were encouraging him to put her into an institution, but he just couldn't bring himself to that. And so he made the decision... Uh, in his early to mid-50s, a decision to resign from his presidency at the college, to put his whole ministry on hold, and to give his wife his undivided care and attention. And for the next 13 years, he devoted himself to caring for her. The living out of what all told was um, a 17-year-long what he called journey into twilight as his wife's mind and life just faded away. A, a journey that, that involved total loss of recognition. She didn't know who he was. Loss of bodily control and function. All that you can imagine. Messy diapers. Near total dependence for everything with 
little or nothing received from her in return for 17 years. And he recounts his thinking in that decision with these words. He writes, Recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me, and almost none of the time I am away from her. It is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. This decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. Here's the, here's the phrase. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. I read that back in the 1980s, I think it was, and it left a permanent mark on me. Oh, to love in this way. Oh, to, oh, to lead in this way. Oh, to care in this way. We, we may or may not be care, called to care for our wives like this, but we are called to serve them every day of our lives. Peter says, husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge or in an understanding way. What does he mean? He means make it the business of your life, gentlemen, to know your wife. Know who she is. Know what makes her tick. Know what makes her afraid. Know what makes her happy. Know what grieves her. Know what delights her. Know where she's weak. Know where she's strong. And then live with her according to that. Live with her out of the knowledge of who she is. Serve her in that way. Paul says, H, hold fast. U, unify. S, sacrifice. And then B, beautify. 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 Verse 26. Husbands, or verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Notice the connection there. Jesus is about the business of beautifying us. He, the, the language here is, is, is astonishing language. He is cleansing us and washing us. The process of sanctification, the, the process of growth in the Christian life is a process of being washed. The shame and the dirt and the grime and the stain and the filth of our sin gradually is being washed off and washed away. And Jesus is going to present us, Paul says, to Himself. And how is He going to present us? Well, look at the words. In splendor. The word means glory. Do, do you realize where this is all headed, child of God? Do you realize what you're going to look like at the wedding supper of the Lamb, do you, do you realize your destiny, splendor, glory? No, normally when we think of glory, we think of God, right? God is glorious. But Paul says, no, we're going to be glorious too. C.S. Lewis says, you've never dealt with a mere mortal. There's no such thing as a mere mortal. We are creatures who are destined for glory. If we are children of God, we're, we're destined, he said, to be um, 
eternal horrors if we're not believers, but immortal splendors if we are. It is, I know it's hard to believe, but, you know, when you see me in heaven, you're going to think glory. It's hard to believe. It's it's what I'm destined for. It's what you're destined for. Splendor. Without spot, Paul says. No, there will not be a single mark, not a single stain. Anywhere in your heart. Anywhere in your person. Anywhere in your thoughts. Utterly, absolutely, eternally Clean. Oh, this is, this is where it's headed. Without wrinkle. I was conscious as I arrived and went in the men's room, looked in the mirror that my shirt's all wrinkled and, you know, you, it's, I've been sitting on it all morning. It's, it's wrinkled. It's, on that day, there's not going to be any wrinkles. No wrinkles, no stains, no spot. And then Paul adds, nor any such thing. In other words, I've come up with every word I can think of to describe how glorious and beautiful the church is going to be. But I can't think of all the words that are sufficient for it. So not only are you not going to have any spot or wrinkle, there's not going to be anything at all even like it. That's where you're headed. And Paul says, husbands, love your wives like this. Be committed to their cleansing, to their washing, to the beautifying of their souls. You know, ultimately, we're all going to be Cinderella without, without a midnight. Yeah. Let's, let's be committed husbands. To increasing through our love, through our affection, through our respect, through our application of gospel truth and grace, through our care, through our affirmation, through our chivalry, through our courtesy, through our kindness, through our praise, through our gratitude. Let's be committed to enhancing the beauty of our wives. Live in such a way, gentlemen, that there develops in your wife over time a beauty that emerges from within, that begins to radiate out. We can love like that. And that happens. Beauty grows as affection and affirmation, and kindness, and praise, and gratitude are poured into the hearts of others. So husbands, hold fast, unify, sacrifice, beautify, and then A, adore. Adore. Verse 25 Husbands, love your wife. Love your wife. Now there you have an imperative. There is a command. Make the choice to love your wife. Listen to it, brothers. Listen to it, friends. Love your wife. Men, woman sitting beside you, your wife, love her. Love her. It's a commandment. Do it. Now you're saying, I'm not sure about that one. I'm here to tell you it's an inescapable obligation. You must love your wife. Remember years and years ago, reading a book on counseling and the counselor was sitting with a couple that were serious uh, warfare going on in the marriage and they were just at odds with each other all the time. And 
And the counselor reminded the husband, God calls you to love your wife. And the man looked at the counselor and said something like, you you don't know what you're asking. (laughs) I can't love my wife. You don't understand the woman that I live with. She is a terrible wife. And so the counselor paused for a second and reflected and said, well, would you acknowledge that this woman who's sitting beside you, who is your wife, uh, even though she may be a terrible wife, would you acknowledge that she's your neighbor? And the man said, well, I guess so. We live right together next to each other. Okay, that's good, because Jesus said, love your neighbor. And the man paused and thought, but you don't understand. This woman is a horror to live with. This this woman is always nagging. This woman is malicious. This woman is mean. This 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 woman is a witch. She is bossy. Uh, so the counselor said, so what you're saying basically is that your wife is your enemy. You're connecting the dots, right? What was it Jesus said? Love your enemies. There's no getting out of this one, guys. There's no getting out of it. The obligation to love. To lay down your life in genuine concern for your wife is a glorious privilege and a binding obligation. No matter what she does. No matter how nagging, malicious, and mean she might be. Love your wife. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Somewhere it fits in there. Adore. Now, I I use the word adore because Paul doesn't stop with the word love. He, He actually uses a couple of other words that get more tender still. If you can get more tender than love. Uh, look at verses 28 and 29. Where Paul, Paul says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. It's that word, it's that word cherish that I, that I want you to notice here. Paul says that we are to cherish our wives even as we cherish our, our own bodies. We, we, we cherish our own bodies. We take really good tender care of ourselves. This, this word cherish is, is actually an incredibly, uh, tender term, very warm. It's, it's used elsewhere of the cherishing that goes on between a mother and an infant in the nursing experience, the, the cherishing of a nursing mother. It's tender affection. It's tender love. It's adoration in the sense of adoring love. It's, it's gentle devotion. Jesus cherishes the church. That's amazing. We are to cherish our wives. That involves romance. That's a whole nother seminar. Um, uh, it involves romance. Uh, but it's deeper than that and bigger than that and sweeter than that. Um, it's the kind of love that cares deeply and with an affectionate heart. It's, it's the kind of love that commits um, to well, let me put it this way, uh, gentlemen. Um, can I can I encourage you as a husband to make it your aim every day that your wife, when she puts her head on the pillow tonight, will feel like she was more loved today than ever before, and then tomorrow do the same thing, so that every day your commitment is: I want my wife. To end this day feeling more love than she ended yesterday. If you keep doing that, uh, you're going to have one cherished wife. Um, 
And your love is going to grow deep and strong. And it's a, it's a commitment that will bring her intense joy, bring you intense joy. Adore. So hold fast. You is unify. S is sacrifice. B, beautify. A, adore. N, nourish. Nourish. Feed. Provide for. This is what husbands do because this is what Christ does. In that text, verse 29, we are to nourish and cherish. We do that for our own bodies. Paul is saying, do that for your wife who really is your body. If you love your wife, you're loving yourself. You are one with her. So nourish her, feed her, provide for her, care for her. And and the primary food nourishment for the soul is actually mentioned through the example of Jesus back in verse 26 who cleanses us, washes us with the Word. Gentlemen, nourish your wives with the Word. Feed them. This doesn't mean stand around and preach to them all day. It just means be yourself in the Word in such a way that it overflows you into your wife's life. Be a man of the Word, a man who reads the Word, a man who hears the Word preached, a man who digests the Word, takes it in, applies it, allows it to nourish his own heart, your own heart, and then out of the fullness that you have received, you will have to give to your wife. You will have to share with your wife. Share what you're reading. Allow her to share with you. Nourish each other. Read together. Learn together. Worship together. Make church and preaching the priority of your life. Men, nourish your wives by making sure Sundays happen. And they happen consistently as a priority. This is where we're in a day, we're in an age where people tend to think if they show up to church once or twice a month, they're being really good, faithful Christians. Folks, You need to be there all the time. You need the Word. You need the ministry of God's Word. Husbands, lead your wives to that. Don't make excuses. Don't neglect it. You need the Word preached. You need it read. You need it reflected on. You need it studied. You need it explained. Feed your own heart and then have that to give to your wife. And then make sure that she has time. Help her to organize her own life in such a way that she has time to be in the Word. That she has time to be nourished. That she has time to be well fed as well. This nourishing can take many forms. It's physical. Work hard, gentlemen, to provide physically for your wife. But it's also spiritual. Work hard, gentlemen, as the leaders of your home, to be in the Word and to know the Word so that the Word is nourishing your family's life. H, hold fast. U, unify. S, sacrifice. B, beautify. A, adore. N, nourish. And D, defend. Defend. Or you might say, defend and deliver. Defend and deliver. I I notice in verse 23, the tight connection between headship and saving. Notice notice it in verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior, its defender-deliverer. Jesus is our defender-deliverer. He, he has defended us. He has delivered us through His death. He is defending us by His Spirit and by His love. He is our Savior. He is our deliverer. He is our defender. And we as husbands are to love our wives like Christ loves us. So in some measure, we are to defend and we are to deliver. We are to be those who protect. We are to be those who guard. We are those to be those who watch over. We we are not to be those who blame our wives. We're to defend our wives. We're not to accuse them. We're to protect them. We're not to abuse them. We're to shield them and cover them. We should stand between them and all harm. That's why you know, 
the younger generation may not get this at all, but when you're walking down the sidewalk, gentlemen, be the one who walks closest to the street in case a car skips the curb. Be the one standing between your wife and peril. Just do it. That's what men do. They think, how do I protect? That's not to say women don't protect and defend and deliver. Well, they do so in magnificent and marvelous ways. It just means that, guys, this is what we're called to. Many women can and do defend and deliver, but men, we must defend and deliver. And, you know, even in our culture that is confusing roles and gender and all the rest, I think everybody knows this. You know, I've often thought about this. You know, let's just imagine that you have a hardcore feminist who, who, you know, just, you know, Men and women can do everything exactly the same, all equal, all egalitarian, all this, all that. And, um, but it's the middle of the night. And this feminist and her husband are in bed. And there's a noise downstairs. The noise of an intruder. What do you think would happen if the husband turned to his feminist wife and said, Well, you know, last time I checked, it's your turn. How do you think that wife would think about her husband? Look, I'm telling you, down deep she'd say, where is my man? Where is my man? Not, again, not because women can't protect can't deliver, they do in remarkable ways. But if a man doesn't, everybody knows he has failed to be a man. And folks, guys, let me just say this. This is why abuse is so evil. Um, Many men think they're being manly, they're being masculine when they're bossy and abusive. And they mistreat women. You are never less masculine. Never less manly. Never less a man than when you are being abusive and mistreating a woman. We are made to protect. We are made to defend and deliver. And to do the opposite, to attack, is to make yourself an absolute non-man. This is what we're called to. We are to love our wives as Christ has loved us. And Christ gave His life to deliver us and defend us. It's more than just physical. It's spiritual. Men, we must be those who pray. We must be those who defend our families in the place of prayer. Standing in the gap between them and all harm. I I know that I have found the example of Job to be a motivating one for me as I think about, remember Job chapter 1? It says that every day he offered sacrifices to the Lord in behalf of his adult children uh, in case they had sinned. And I, I've read that and just thought about, wow. Here's a man, his kids are all grown, they're out of the house, but he has this ongoing, in effect, uh, prayer <laughs> Commitment every day, going before God, trying to cover his children with his prayers and with his sacrifice. Men, we should do that every day for our wives. We should do that every day for our children. We should be men who stand in the gap, men who pray, men who defend and deliver through a ministry of prayer. There's many forms to this, but well, there is enough there. It seems to me we hold fast, we unify, we sacrifice, we beautify, we adore, we nourish, we defend and deliver. Wives, as you hear this, um, can I encourage you to, here's what you're not to do. (laughs) Don't take that list and post it, you know, on the bathroom mirror. Don't, don't, don't lay it on your husband's pillow at night. Don't leave it conveniently on the little table by his chair. 
Um, now here's what you do, ladies. Pray for your men. Hearing this should make you aware of the high, holy, hard calling it is to be a man. This is why so many men are neglecting their role. Because it's a high, holy, hard calling. It's not easy. Ladies, pray for your husbands. Pray that God would give them courage. God would give them faith. God would give them grace. God would give them strength. Because, you know, something your guys are, I guarantee you, are experiencing, have experienced, is the frustration and the futility that comes out of multiple failures. I know it's my experience. There are some aspects of husbanding that I just, it just, I have tried so many times to improve and then stumbled and failed. I get to a point where I don't even want to try anymore. I don't know if anyone else can identify with that. Ladies, pray for your husbands. You can tell where the glaring, consistent failures are. Don't nag them. Pray for them. Uh, pray that God would give them fresh hope, fresh faith, that they could apply themselves to those things in a new way starting now. So let me pray now. Father, uh, I pray that You'll be with, on, with us as husbands. Lord, give us grace that we might lead and love like Jesus leads and loves. At all cost, Father, give us grace and we will lay down our lives in love for our wife, for our children. Give us faith. Give us hope that Your grace will be sufficient for this. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks, Tim. Um, at this time, we're going to take some uh, questions for some Q&A. And so, uh, gentlemen, ladies, any questions you wrote down during that time or that are on your heart right now, um, feel free to ask them for the next uh, five, ten minutes. We'll take some questions. So, anybody have a question? Wow. Must have been Great. brilliant. Yeah, hold on one second, Tim. <laughs> Tim, uh, when you're feeling, uh, you, you mentioned uh, we get in a, a place where we're just like, you feel like you, you're just failing in a certain area or in several, several areas. Maybe you can just walk through some of the, how Holy Spirit of God just got you okay. through that. And Good. I don't know if everyone could hear that. When you are failing and maybe it's the thousandth time that you failed, and you're discouraged and you're not sure that you can start again, try again. How do you, how do you move through that? Um, uh, few thing, two or three things come to mind and I'm not sure these are in any specific order. Um, and the first is just going to sound cliched, but it's, it's just not. It's, it, you do just need to go to prayer. You just, you just, you just need to cry out to God. Desperate prayer. Lord, I know what you're calling me to. And I also know how weak I am. I need your help. I can't do this on my own. A kind of desperation in prayer. Just crying out to God for his help is, is where it all has to, has to start. And part of that is, Lord, Lord, just get, just a second point. Lord, give me grace for today. Um, I remember when I first was stepping into pastoral ministry, which is 35 years ago now. I was 23 years old. And, and um, I remember as a church in Jersey called me to be their pastor that I was, um, it all of a sudden hit me like, I'm 23. My dad at that point was... In the 60s or 70s, he had been a pastor for many years and he lived to be 80. So I'm thinking, okay, that's, that probably means if I live as long as my dad does, I, I probably have at least 50 years of ministry ahead of me. <laughs> and I remember like, <laughs> just, just this panic set in. And 
it was just it was it was a moment where I think the spirit just spoke right into my heart and and the words that came to me. But Tim, I'm not calling you to 50 years. I'm calling you to today. Uh, you be faithful today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough problems of its own. This is this is this isn't guys, folks. This is a way of life. Do life today. And if you are if you are overwhelmed by a sense of failure time and time and time again, and the realization, you know, it seems like every time I do this, it lasts for four days and then it's gone. Well, uh, you know, how am I going to do this the rest of my life? You know, don't think like that. Think, do, do I have faith that God can give me grace to love my wife better today? Well, yeah, I think we can all gain faith for that. Then you wake up in the morning the next day and you just start over. Um, live life in 24-hour increments. And if you have to, reduce it to 12. Or 6. Or 6-minute six increments. Uh, take each day, take each moment as its own. Trusting that God is going to be enough in the moment and in the day. Um, that for me has been huge in the face of Husbanding, fathering, pastoring weakness and failure. All right, Lord, give me grace for, for today. Um, you could also add to that, you know, uh, um, become accountable to other men in your, in your community groups, in your small groups. You know, share with them what you're working toward and what you're aiming at. Ask them to hold you accountable. Ask them to ask you how you're doing in those things and to put your feet to the fire. We need all the accountability and help we can get. Hebrews says, stimulate one another to love and good works. We, we need that. And as men, we need it as well. There are other things, but those are three things that have helped me. There. So. Thanks. Thanks, Tim. Any other questions? Well, is there anyone else? Uh, uh, I thought I saw a hand start to go up over here somewhere. Was there someone else that started? Okay. All right, do one more and then we better break. And Sorry, don't mean to be a uh, Mike Hogg. For, um, you came from a Christian background and you had godly, you know, godly father. Mm-hmm. For those of us who have, you know, don't and, you know, have, don't have, the models that we have are yeah. what we have in the church now, but what we grew up with. So that, that baggage, dealing with that old baggage and, I don't know yeah. if you... Again, the question was, you know, I, uh, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were godly believers. Uh, what, what about if you didn't have that? You know, if you didn't have the role models, if you didn't have the examples? Um, my first response to that is, yes, I grew up with a godly father and mother, but my father and mother did not have a godly father and mother. My parents were first generation Christians and both of them were raised in abject poverty and dysfunctionality. My grandparents on my mom's side were divorced when my mom was two. My grandmother worked seven days a week my mom was raised by her older sister. Um, my dad had a family that was dysfunctional in many ways, did not come to know Christ until his mid-20s, uh, t- starting completely from scratch. Um, what he had was a unflinching faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Word of God and a commitment to follow it as best he could. So anything and everything it said about marriage, he tried to apply. Anything and everything he said about parenting and everything else, he tried to apply. There was this conscientious commitment. I am a follower of Christ, and that means I seek to obey Christ no matter what. That was what drove my dad and mom. Uh, so that as a first-generation set of parents, they... They gave birth to six children, five of which know and love the Lord Jesus. Um, they had 32 grandchildren, many of which know and love Christ and are serving Christ. Um, if they were still alive, 
I think the number's up to about 70 or something like that. Grandchildren and great-grandchildren, uh, maybe great-great-grandchildren. Uh, they started a new spiritual family tree. And this is what I would want to hold out for any of you who are first-generation Christians. You have a unique privilege and an honor given to you by the Lord Jesus to start something new. Take whatever was good you got from dad and mom, even whatever was bad you got from dad and mom. Learn from it. Grow from it. Then go to the Word. Go to the Lord and say, now, Lord, how do I build on this something new so that there's a new branch to the family tree that is followers of Jesus uh, so that your children have more opportunity than you had and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren to a thousand generations as it's put in the Scriptures. So.